Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Taylor Branch is an author and journalist, best known for his landmark trilogy on the civil rights era, America in the King Years, which has won many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Beginning with Parting the Waters in 1988, followed 10 years later with Pillar of Fire, and closing with At Canaan's Gate in 2007. Taylor Branch has written more than a biography of the short life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Branch gives us a social and political history of the civil rights movement, the conditions that created it, and the epic struggle it waged as it forced the country to rethink the concept of democracy. In America in the King Years, Branch demonstrates his belief that the civil rights movement is the defining political moment in 20th century U.S. history, and at its center was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It took Taylor Branch 24 years to complete this trilogy. And while I'm sure he understood that the books would be a vast undertaking, I wondered if he knew when he began the project that it would become, in many ways, his life's work. I knew it was my life's motivating force. The civil rights movement is what got me interested in politics in, in the first place, against my will. I didn't grow up interested in politics. I grew up in Atlanta wanting to be a surgeon and basically apolitical. My father always used to say that people interested in politics couldn't find honest work. But the civil rights movement, when I was a kid, basically, the bus boycott started when I was nine, and the Birmingham demonstrations were when I was 16. And by that time, you, you couldn't ignore it in the South. It was scary. Most people uh, were frightened of it on all sides. But the demonstrations by the school children uh, in Birmingham when they put dogs and fire hoses on them just were a life-changing event for me that um, I just wondered where this came from, that these kids could march through dogs and fire hoses singing songs like I sang in Sunday school. And what made the police do this and what made the kids go and... Uh, I was just stupefied by it. I thought it had enormous power. It got me interested in politics, and 20 years later, as a writer, kind of backing into this profession, I had the opportunity to go and ask a publisher. I'd really like to write a storytelling history of where this movement came from, and it was really personal in a way, partly personal, because I knew it had kind of shaped my life from then. Uh, so I knew it was very important to me, and I planned it to be three years, which was three times longer than any of my previous books. As you make clear why it moved you very personally, I think one thing that this trilogy does is you make it very clear why it should move all of us very deeply and how it moved America and how it is the defining political moment in the 20th century in the United States. I think so. I think the record is pretty clear that it's transformed the whole country, not just race relations, although it's transformed those too, in the sense that terror, the routine terror 
that existed in the United States in an era spotted with lynchings, and those lynchings with virtually no hope of justice, is gone. But it extended so far beyond that in ways that we take for granted and, or deny. As Dr. King said, the, the Civil Rights Movement liberated the White South, the White South, which was the poorest region of the country when it was segregated. So much of its psychological energy was invested in enforcing segregation uh, that you couldn't even have sports teams in the South, uh, professional sports teams, until the Civil Rights Movement got, gets rid of segregation, and the next thing you know, you've got the Atlanta Braves and the Miami Dolphins in a region that had never even had professional sports because you couldn't have business meetings. You were so worried about segregation and who might be there. And it introduced two-party competition by creating black voters, but it also, in the course of doing that, created the first two-party competition in a region that was ossified in one-party democratic politics for a century. When it removed all of that, it made white politicians eligible to become leaders in both national parties, which we now take for granted, but could never have occurred. Trent Lott wouldn't have existed without the civil rights movement. The prosperous Sunbelt South wouldn't have existed without the civil rights movement. Women didn't, weren't eligible to go to most of the private colleges in the United States, including Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, you know, on and on, until the civil rights movement got people struggling over what equal citizenship ought to mean. It, it's just amazing the breadth of the liberation that was set forward. You call the trilogy America in the King Years, mm -hmm. and throughout these books you really make a case that they should be seen as the King Years. Talk about that case. Yes, I mean the King years in the sense that I think the civil rights movement was the driving force and that King was at the center of the movement, not always the leader of the movement, but he was at the center of people's attention, whether, whether it was the, those hostile to him in and out of the government, the Klan threatening to kill him every day, or, and J. Edgar Hoover trying to wiretap and bug him every day, or people within the movement who were fussing at him to do this, that, or the other. He was at the center of the crucible for uh, a period that uncannily overlaps his career, from the Brown decision of 1954 when he took his first church until 68 when essentially the modern the movement kind of dissipated and petered out was the year that he was killed. You've got 14 years of struggle over Brown, the bus boycott, the sit-ins, the freedom rides, the great struggles over segregation in Birmingham, the struggles over voting in Mississippi Freedom Summer and Selma, then the riot period, uh, all defining struggles of, of for democracy, what democracy means, what's the relationship between democracy and violence, between democracy and nonviolence, and King is saying, you know, nonviolence is the most powerful weapon. King is at the center of all of those movements, and they essentially dissipate uh, when his life I is gone. So in that sense, I think they are the King years, because you have this period of, of defining struggle over freedom with King at the center. It's interesting because after Dr. King was killed, Stanley Levinson, who was one of his advisors, said very soon after, now they're going to make him into a plaster saint, sort of stuck in the I have a dream speech moment. Right. And I think part of what you do in this book is take him out of that casement, if you will, because you really look at his philosophy and, and the way, even as the movement that he was at the center of began to dissipate, his own moral and political philosophy strengthened, and his commitment to nonviolence grew as violence, in fact, escalated. And he extended that reach to talking about civil rights means talking about poverty 
and talking against the war in Vietnam and really grew in stature, even as in some ways his political power diminished. Absolutely. His Nobel Prize speech is sadly uh, uh, ignored, and it's the first one where he's trying to articulate a credo for for nonviolence that reaches beyond race and saying that race has in common as an issue a dehumanizing quality that it shares with both war and poverty, kind of violence of the spirit, violence of the flesh. And in that Nobel Prize speech in 1964, uh, he talks about this as the trio that we must struggle against and that there are enormous resources within ecumenical spirit of religion and within democracy if citizens take them seriously to deal with these issues, the triplets, he called them, war, racism, and poverty. So that was a credo moment for him. And he talked about the barefoot and shirtless people of the world and that uh, they're our brothers, and as the world shrinks, we ignore them at our peril. But nobody else was paying any attention to that. But, you know, nonviolence takes extraordinary courage and strength. I think it also places an extraordinary burden on those who practice it. Absolutely. The great irony uh, in this period is that at the same time, he's making the case that nonviolence is the most powerful idea to come out of the civil rights movement and will have all these benefits spreading far beyond just the changing of uh, the conditions of segregated black America. Nonviolence is the first idea to become passe in the movement across the board. It's resented by people in the movement as a special burden for black people, and they've been doing it for five years. And people saying there's, you know, America only admires nonviolence in black people, otherwise it admires James Bond and John Wayne. And it, and it was ridiculed in the sophisticated white press, the New York Review of Books, you know, uh, uh, nonviolence is a, a tool of the past. And so it was surprising to me to find that in the last few years of his life, he emphasized it more and more, they're like ships passing in the night that the more he's ignored toward the end of his career, the more he tries to say, almost like somebody crying in the wilderness, this was what set all these blessings in motion, and I hope one day you will recover it. And almost every speech was about nonviolence. At the same time, it was becoming passe in public discourse. And it really has been passe in American intellectual and political discourse for the two generations uh, since he died. Taylor, this third volume begins with the attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. Remind us why that march was so important. Well, on its face, it's struggling over the most fundamental issue of democracy, who can vote, because uh, black people were disenfranchised across the South. And uh, Dr. King had come back from the Nobel Prize, which he was won, uh, and the the end of the civil rights uh, struggle over segregation in the end of 1964, with all of his staff saying, We've struggled for this for 10 years. We've won a victory. You've got the Nobel Prize. Let's go to chicken dinners for 10 years. He's saying, this is a mountaintop experience, but the valley calls me because people can't vote. And he comes straight back against all of his staff and is in jail in Selma within weeks in a movement for the right to vote that had been suggested to him by two young 22-year-olds on his staff, James Bevel and his wife, Diane Nash both SNCC kids who had been pestering him to go on the right to vote. They struggled there in Selma for a couple of months. The movement was petering out, and they decided as a desperate gesture, essentially, to try to march 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery to to present a petition to Governor Wallace, George Wallace, in Montgomery. 
And on March 7th, the first attempt, they came out of Selma, they went over the Edmund Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River. Uh, 600 uh, black people, mostly from Selma and the surrounding rural counties. And uh, on the other side, they were met by George Wallace's state troopers and some Klan posse-men on horseback and uh, violently dispersed with tear gas and truncheons made out of um, uh, clubs with with barbed wire uh, nailed to them. And a lot of them were terribly beaten. And film footage of that was put on television that same Sunday night, interrupting the network premiere of Judgment at Nuremberg. So for a huge audience of over 50 million Americans, they were watching an award-winning film about ordinary Germans struggling with whether or not they had allowed Hitler to rise up in Germany. And this movie is suddenly interrupted by newscasters who come in and say, we have film footage from today in Selma. And all of a sudden, you shift from Germany to this film footage of white posse men beating nonviolent, peaceful protesters seeking the right to vote. And that just caused a national and international crisis that broke down people's distance about what was going to happen. How did people respond to these horrible images being played out in their living rooms on their television screens? It set in motion a daily struggle. King that very night appealed to all Americans, said this is a crisis for all democracy, and no American is without responsibility for this issue. It's not just an issue of what should happen to black people. This is an issue of the soul of our democracy. And he appealed to people not to write their congressman, not to work hard for the next election, and not to do something in a month. He said, I want you to come to Selma and stand with us tomorrow. And he put out this appeal, and people came from all over the country, nuns from St. Louis, uh, students from all over, seminarians, uh, several of whom became martyrs. And they went down there and stood, so there was this huge outpouring of support for it, the whole question of democracy, should black people be allowed to vote? And it set in motion an almost daily struggle that drew in all three branches of government, the federal court, President Johnson, what's he's going to do? This was the great drama over voting rights at the very basic part of democracy. But Dr. King wasn't at the original march. He wasn't at the original march. He was at the next two. They were paralyzed as to whether or not they'd be able to complete this march. And they ultimately had three of them. And they finally, uh, by the end of that month, they did march all 54 miles. And, but by then, Lyndon Johnson had introduced the vo- what became the Voting Rights Act, knowing that he was risking the political base of, dem- of Democratic presidents. He said, for my lifetime and yours, to all of his aides, because, uh, you know, the Democrats had only been elected president based on the solid South, and it was a solid Democratic segregationist South because the Democratic Party, back since the Civil War against Lincoln, uh, had been segregationist in the South. And Johnson said, we're risking that, but we have to do it anyway. LBJ also played a fascinating role behind the scenes in all this. Yes. What's so poignant about this? Now we can hear him talking on the telephone, and we have a lot of the declassified papers, and we have the archives and the wiretaps and the, and the interviews and the records of what was going on in the, in the movement. There was an extraordinary collaboration between Johnson and the movement, where Johnson is saying the citizens' movement has to create the political space to allow the president to respond. I can't be the forward spearhead of the movement. But when you do that and you go down and have these demonstrations that I can't endorse, you're opening up political space within freedom and allowing me to come in and answer when the pressure builds up. And that's what he told Dr. King. This was the greatest thing 
that ever happened. I never would have been able to propose this law if you hadn't asked all of Americans to get involved and remind us that this is a citizen's government and we can address these issues. And then Johnson goes into the House of Representatives and says, we have to have a Voting Rights Act. This is a moment just like Appomattox and just like Concord in the American Revolution goes to the heart of freedom and we shall overcome, which was a jaw-dropping moment in American politics that the first Southern president in a century adopts the slogan of the black civil rights movement addressing a Congress dominated by Southerners who sit there slack-jawed and say, you know, that Johnson's a traitor. What's going on here? It's a truly great drama in American history. And how did Dr. King respond to Johnson's address before Congress? He cried. He watched it. He was watching it down in Selma. Uh, This was a great moment. You know, there were arguments within the movement. Some people said that's just fake, you know, that's all political theater. Other people said Johnson's preaching. If it were a political gesture, he wouldn't be attaching it to landmark legislation that suspended the right of the states. This is pretty precious stuff in Federalist theory. The Voting Rights Act of 65, under certain conditions, basically said that the states could no longer be trusted to set the qualifications for who would be allowed to register to vote. And all of the best lawyers, including his attorney general, said the only way to get around all the tricks that they use to disenfranchise people is under these circumstances to say you can no longer do this and the federal government will register the people, will send registrars in. And that's how the back was broken. And you had the Southern resistance saying, this is tyranny. This is totalitarian. You'll have to have troops on every street corner. Richard Russell of Georgia, who might have been president if he hadn't been a segregationist, said this will ruin the economy. The garden variety white person won't have a chance in the economy. Nobody will be free. And this is a formula for disaster, none of which proved true. There's no troops on the street corners in the South anymore guaranteeing the right to vote, although we still have controversy over it. Far from ruining the whole economy of the United States, the economy of the South in particular, took off. And yet, somehow in mythology, dominant mythology of history, this was a time that proved that government was bad and that it couldn't accomplish anything good. And government was, is bad, and everything non-military became the dominant political idea coming out of the civil rights movement in reaction. And that shows to me how disjointed our politics is because we haven't been able to, to face squarely the hopes and the realities coming out of this period. Well, one of those hopes had to do with immigration. Didn't, didn't the Voting Rights Act lead to immigration reform? Yes. The Immigration Reform Act of 1965 passed a month after the Voting Rights Bill by the same vote because the Southern opposition was prostrate for the Voting Rights Bill. Johnson uses that momentum to change the immigration law. The Senate had protected since the 1920s an immigration law that restricted legal immigration to citizens from northern Europe. And people from huge stretches of the earth were not even eligible to apply for naturalized citizenship. All of Asia, Africa, had tiny, tiny, it was called a quota system. Johnson pushed through the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, which he signed on October 3rd under the Statue of Liberty, and said, never again will prejudice and race shadow the gates to the American nation. And it allowed the first families of Koreans, uh, Chinese, uh, Indians, Syrians, Africans, Indonesians, Vietnamese uh, to become eligible and slowly changed what we take for granted of what neighborhoods we have, the kind of families that we have, that we have people from all over the world here, which is a great strength, he said. 
But it wasn't even covered as a civil rights bill or even as a significant bill. It was covered as a Cold War measure. People didn't realize it. So they were struggling over very, very fundamental things then. It has changed literally the face of America, the Immigration Act. And as I say, I think the Voting Rights Act has changed the the structure of partisan politics for the better based on what it did in the South and, and of course, enfranchising uh, millions of black people who had never been allowed to vote before. So these are huge changes that come out of this period. The very core issues of uh, democracy and what is an American, is, an, is being an American an idea or is it a, you know, a nation stock and a racial stock? And uh, we decided to reject that. And that's the conversation that you're arguing in these books that Dr. King forced. He forced it, and he spoke more profoundly about it than I was prepared for, quite frankly. I knew there was something very stirring when you just listen to the timbre of his voice, but when you actually study what he's saying, he's talking about issues grounded in race, but much broader than race, about democracy and about the essence of the kind of a religious spirit and what binds us all as, you know, as one human race. So, people have tended since to try to put him in one box or another. This is much more profound, much more challenging than that. He said if democracy were an easy idea, it wouldn't have taken 20 centuries to have new democracy after Greece. The idea that people can govern themselves and build kind of a public trust and that the citizens themselves can be responsible in public opinion, that was a credo for him. So you're saying to look at the philosophical heart of Dr. King's message means really interrogating what America means. Yes, he's saying, what is democracy? What is it? What is a vote? And of course, his answer was that every vote, every ballot is just a piece of nonviolence. Uh, That's all it is. It's kind of an agreement that we're struggling toward to settle our differences and to build cooperation. He called it a compact of citizens cooperatively. And that's where our, he says, not only our virtue is, but he says in the long run, that's where our strength is, that our strength is in these values. And that if we become a more violent uh, society, we're, we're not becoming stronger. He would say, and what he did say, is that the whole notion that we have now that we have to we have to be nasty and secret and authoritarian and violent and torturous to be strong and give up some of our commitment to democracy, he would say that's a false choice, that once you make that choice, you've already lost. prize-winning author Taylor Branch, talking about his three-volume history, America in the King Years. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Freedom, sung by Bayard Rustin, used courtesy of the Bayard Rustin Foundation. Excerpt from On My Way, from the album We'll Never Turn Back, performed by NEA Heritage Fellow Mavis Staples. Use courtesy of Anti Records. 
The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. To go with me, I'm on my way. Red God Almighty, I'm on my way. If they say no,